All right, so, okay, we've already, we've kind of been talking about the, the big picture here so far. So let's continue with that big picture. What kind of king has David been so far? What kind of king have we seen David be? All right, we've seen him be a king who worships the Lord publicly, right? That was from two weeks ago when they brought the ark in. He worships the Lord without restraint. Um, he does it so that others will see. He wants people to worship the Lord. He's the kind of king who mills about with the people. Remember how uh, Michael got mad at him because he was acting like everybody else? He's that kind of king. He is a king who is more concerned with God's reputation than his own reputation. This is the kind of king we want. He's a king who gives instead of just a king who takes all the time. Although next week we are going to see him fall and be a king who takes instead of a king who gives. Uh, he is a king who welcomes and desires the kingdom of God, and thus he welcomes the reign of God over and above his own. He knows where he's at. I think it was, I forget what chapter it was in, but David refers to himself as a prince a couple of times. He doesn't actually refer to himself as the king. So he knows who is the true king, uh, which is pretty cool. So tonight we're going to add to this list of what kind of king we see David being. Tonight we're going to see him be a king who reigns with justice and equity to all people. It states that in 815. He's a king who eats with the shamed and the crippled. He's a king who brings honor out of shame. And he's a king who invites the lowly to his very own table. So who do those things sound like? They sound like Christ. Yes, it's so cool. David is a king unlike any other king to portray that we have a king unlike any other king. So the first place we see this tonight is in chapter 8 where David's kingdom expands immensely right? So no one could stand up against God and his anointed. That's what we see in chapter 8. It didn't matter who tried. It didn't matter what they tried. No one could stand up against God and his anointed, giving us a great picture of Christ's future reign, right? David reigned, when you look at those different countries, maybe if you look at them on a map of who he defeated, and he defeated the Moabites, he defeats the Philistines. He defeats Hadadezer, king of Zobah. He defeats the Syrians. He defeats the Edomites. He reigns from north, south, east, and west. He, his, the kingdom expands in every direction because one day Christ, his kingdom, will expand in every direction. Jesus will reign from north, south, east, and west, and no one will be able to stand against him. No country, no leader, no individual will be able to stand against the Lord. Nothing will get in his way. The nations belong to Christ, just as it seems in chapter 8 to us that the nations belonged to David. God gave them to David. So the difference between Christ and David here really is that Christ achieves his authority on his own. I mean, God does give him the authority, but he achieved it when he died and resurrected and defeated death and sin, whereas all of David's victories are just plain gifted to him by God so that, uh, well, for our purposes, so that he can metaphorically picture Christ for us uh, in the coming days that we get to look forward to. So in chapter 8, in both verses 6 and 14, it points out that the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. It's always important when things are repeat, repeated, so it says it twice. The Lord is the one who gave victory, gave David victory wherever he went. So that guides us right back to the Davidic covenant, which we already talked about. And David's um, achievements are not his own doing. They were all from the Lord. Uh, like we talked about, God gives David rest from all of his enemies. That's referring back to verse 11 in chapter 7 of the Davidic covenant. Um, David also reigns then with peace uh, for God. There's David's, let me say that again. 
David's reign means peace for God's people. So Christ's reign will mean peace for God's people. We will live in peace and safety. You read a lot of other Old Testament passages where it's going to talk about the peace that's going to come to the people of God during, during the Messiah's reign, during Christ's reign. In verse 15 then of chapter 8, it says, And David administered justice and equity to all his people. I really loved that verse, just thinking about Christ and how that also metaphorically symbolizes Jesus and his future reign, administering Jesus, administering justice and equity to all people. But in Jeremiah 23, it doesn't use the word equity. I'm going to go there. Where's my other book? There it is. It says this, and I want to, so I want to make this connection for you in Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8 of David and then David's greater son, Jesus. Let's just make this whole connection here. It says in Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness. So we see David here execute justice and equity. Jesus executes justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. So we see, see the same picture of, of Israel dwelling securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And I thought this was kind of interesting. It goes on to say, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. So there's a day coming when we'll no longer look back to Israel's exodus from Egypt. We'll look back to their home. We'll, we'll go, that's the Lord who brought them all home. That's what we'll be referred to. Isn't that kind of cool? Think about just Jesus like regathering everybody and bringing us all home where we all, I just thought that was really neat. Like I'd never caught that before. No longer will we say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. No, we'll say, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of David out of the north back home. So that's, I thought that was kind of neat. Um, thinking about that. But what we're trying to develop here is this picture of David in this chapter metaphorically symbolizing Christ. So I think we're getting there by, by looking at this, right? No one can stand up against God and his anointed. Jesus is the ultimate anointed of the Lord. He is David's greater son. He is the righteous branch to come. So in the end, all who belong to him will dwell in peace. So we who belong to him, and I think every single one of us in this room belong to him, we will dwell in peace forever, just like the Israelites were dwelling under David's authority with Christ as king in perfect peace, with his righteousness over us like a banner his peace all around us. No one will be able to stand against him. I mean, it, that's going to be awesome, right? Just think about that for a minute. We've got so many worries about things. We don't know what our nation's going to look like next week, let alone years from now, where we're headed. And it's like someday we won't have to worry about any of that. We will dwell in safety and peace and righteousness with Christ as king. And those who belong to him will have the blessing of dwelling in that peace. Okay, Psalm 2, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and I just, I think it bears mention again because it just kind of lays everything out, out, out nicely. The title of Psalm 2 is the reign of the Lord's anointed. So how perfect does that fit, right? When looking at this chapter 8, you see David's reign, the reign of the Lord's anointed. So we talked about this, um, these first few verses, and it says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, 
saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So you get this picture of these nations raging and plotting, but it's all in vain because of verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He just laughs. He's totally in control. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I mean, he set his king on Zion, and no one's going to do anything about that, right? That's just really cool. Now, here's where we connect to Dave, this psalm with David. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That son right there connects this psalm with David's as being the one who is anticipated. Because in the covenant, God told David, he will be my son. So that's how these things connect. These verses connect with what we're looking at. He shall break them, meaning the nations, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Kind of like David was doing, right? And then it goes on. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. And then it ends with this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All right, that's us. That's Mephibosheth in a minute. He's going to take refuge in the king. And it warns here, kiss the son. Go to him. You, he's going to reign anyway, so you might as well bow your knee to God's anointed king who's on Zion. But there is a choice, right? We have a choice to Christ's rule to either serve him or scorn him. And that's where now we've had this big picture of chapter 8. That's where these are going to split. You can either serve the king or you can scorn the king. No matter what you do, no matter what the nations plot, no matter what is planned, Christ rules, he is king, and now there's a choice to be made. Are you going to accept his kindness? Or are you going to reject his kindness? Are you kind of seeing that overarching picture? Okay. All right. So let's move in then with that stage kind of being set into chapter 9. So some years into David's reign, we don't know when exactly this did take place, but David decides that he, he wants to make sure he is keeping his promise to Jonathan to look after his family. He made that promise to him back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, and he also made the promise to Saul in 1 Samuel 24. I'm just going to remind you of that real quick. 1 Samuel 24, 20. And now behold, this is Saul speaking, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Because that was a big thing. Like when, when a new dynasty took over, you wiped everyone out. So this is big of David to say this, and he has to trust the Lord in order to do so. But he says to him, and David swore this to Saul. And then Saul went home, and then David went home. So he made this promise to both Jonathan and Saul that he would not cut off their family line. Now, Bophibosheth, the Bosheth part, so the second part of his name, in the Hebrew means shame. So we would have seen this already with Ishbosheth's name. Remember, Ishbosheth was. Uh, Saul's son who Abner tried to make king for a couple of years. Okay, that Bosheth in Hebrew means shame. This is kind of an important picture of our, our, uh, pic- our spiritual picture that's going to develop. In addition to that, it tells us that Mephibosheth is living in Lodibar. That's where he's living when David seeks him out. In Lodibar means nothing. That's what it means. It means nothing. So Mephibosheth is a man associated with shame in a place of nothing. How about that for a spiritual picture? 
He is a man of shame in a place of nothing. So compared to God, that is us also. We're people of great shame with our sin, really with nothing, in a place of nothing, nothing to really offer God apart from God. We're nobodies from a place of nothing. But to make matters worse for Mephibosheth, he's crippled. And it tells us that in both feet, and it says it to us twice. So his physical malady is a picture then of our spiritual malady, if we're going to continue with this uh, spiritual picture we have going. So Mephibosheth lived a life of shame then because he could not contribute to society the way most people contributed. Think back, he lives in a society of war. He also lives in an um, agrarian society. So they're farming all the time. Can he help with any of that? No, he cannot do any of the things that most men do. So honestly, he has very little to offer David and David's kingdom. What can he do for David's kingdom? Really, he can do nothing for David's kingdom apart from David enabling him to do so. Do you see where I'm heading with this? Is this fun or what? He can't do anything. I'm seeing another parallel. Jesus said we can do nothing apart from him. We've got nothing to offer until Jesus steps in and enables us, us to offer something to God's kingdom by using the Holy Spirit through us, right? So just as Mephibosheth could not contribute to David's kingdom due to his crippled state, neither can we contribute to God's kingdom due to our spiritually crippled state without Christ's help, without the king's help. So who are we, really? We're shameful, unworthy, sinfully crippled nobodies. How's out for self-esteem, right? You can all go home now. You're just a bunch of shameful, unworthy, spiritually crippled nobodies. <laughs> we tell it like it is around here. Yet what does Mephibosheth do when David calls him to the palace? In verse 6 of chapter 8, he offers David his service. He's a man of shame from a place of nothing who's crippled in both feet. And he comes and in verse 6 he says, Behold, I am your servant. I just thought that was such a great picture in and of itself right there. That is the correct answer because we're talking about God's anointed. We're talking about the great king, you know. If the king calls you, what's the appropriate response? I am your servant. I am at your service. Yes, that is the appropriate response. But looking at us and thinking about us in the place of Mephibosheth with Jesus as our king, we can show up still and say, behold, I am your servant. We may not think we have much to offer, but that doesn't matter. Even though we may not feel like we have a lot to offer God or really anything of value to offer God, we still need to be showing up before the Lord, ready and willing to do whatever he asks. And why is that? Because it's all about him enabling us. It's all about what he is going to do for us in the first place. And then what it's what we get to turn around and do for him because of what he enables us to do. So really, okay, we'll stop. I wrote a principle down. We got to catch that first. And here's your principle. We offer ourselves to God because of who he is, not what we have. We offer ourselves to God because of who he is, not what we have. We offer ourselves to God because of who he is and not what we have. Mephibosheth didn't show up because he had all these, oh yes, I'll go to the king and I'll offer all my services. This is great. He showed up as a man of shame from a place of nothing with absolutely nothing to offer his kingdom. And yet he says, I am your servant. And it didn't matter that Mephibosheth didn't have anything to offer because really what this story is all about is not what Mephibosheth can do for David, but what David can do for Mephibosheth. 
That's what the story is all about. What kind of king is David in this story? And thus, what kind of king is Jesus? That's what we get to see out of this story. And Jesus and David um, pictured this for us, but Jesus is the king who brings honor out of shame. That's who he is, the king who brings honor out of shame. So this story really beautifully portrays the gospel. As David brings honor to Mephibosheth, a man of shame from a place of nothing. So you guys, we can daily show up before the Lord ready and willing with confidence because it's not about what we can do for God. It's about what God can do through us, right? We can come from our places of shame and our places of nothing and just offer him ourselves. The other reason is it's because it's God's intention to show us kindness. We can go ahead and show up just as it was David's intention to show Mephibosheth kindness, so is it Christ's intention to bestow kindness upon us. I love what David first says to Mephibosheth, and obviously he would come with some fear and trepidation before the king, right? But David says in verse 7, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness. And somebody needs to hear God saying those words to them tonight. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness. I can just hear Jesus saying those words to us. There's probably a lot of things you're scared about, Stacy. There's a lot of things you're concerned about. But I just need to hear the Lord saying to me, don't fear. You know, I will show you kindness. That's my intention is to show you kindness. It's also his intention to draw us closer to him. So sometimes the things that happen to us don't always seem kind. But is there anything kinder than being close to God? No. There's nothing he can do that's better for us than drawing us close. But let me ask this question. Is that how you view God? Do you view him as kind? When I'm thinking about the gospel, I view him as kind. But sometimes when I'm thinking about my daily circumstances, I don't view him as kind. Things aren't really going the way that I intended or I'm dealing with something that I did not plan on, though the kids are crazy, or I've just had enough. Why is this happening to me, Lord? You know, all of those different scenarios that happen. We don't view him as kind or with kind intentions toward us in those moments, but it's still true that Christ is the king of kings whose intention towards us is kindness. That's still true, whether or not it seems to be playing out in our daily life or not. But what often happens is that we like to interpret God's kindness to us through those circumstances instead of his character. That's what we tend to lean towards when we're trying to measure God's kindness. So if God gives us what we want, then we figure he is kind. But when God doesn't fulfill our hopes and dreams the way that we want him to, do we still see him as kind? Hmm. We don't always view him as kind in those situations. But it's in those moments, then, that you do preach the gospel to yourself, that we do have to remember it's God's kindness that led us to repentance in the first place. That's what Romans 2.4 says. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Romans 2.4. Yeah, I would say more often than not, we tend to view God's kindness through our physical circumstances instead of our spiritual circumstances. We need to start thinking about those spiritual circumstances, which is really what Mephibosheth does for us. He's going to help us see these spiritual circumstances of God's kindness to us instead of always focusing on the physical. When we focus on the physical, that just doesn't work. We cannot view God's kindness to us. We are blessed. There's no doubt about that, looking about, you know, just even being here with the freedom to do this. But we get hung up sometimes on those little physical things going on in our lives. 
and we forget to look at it through the lens of the spiritual circumstances that we're living under all the time. So just as David brought Mephibosheth, a lowly and crippled nobody, into his presence, into his palace, to sit at his table forever as one of the king's sons. This is what David does for Mephibosheth. He brings him in, not only to the palace, but to his table as one of the king's sons. So does Christ bring us into his presence to sit at his table forever as one of God's children. Do you see that picture? It's just so cool. And that is kindness. That's God's kindness to us. He brings us into his presence. He brings us into his blessing. He brings us into his family. He asks us to take a seat at his table. Yes, David had made a deal with Jonathan and Saul to bless their descendants, and you could make that argument. But David, like we mentioned earlier, goes way beyond just fulfilling the letter of the promise. He goes way beyond that. He doesn't just give Mephibosheth land and protection and provision. He doesn't just give him his life. But he brings him into a relationship with him. He gave him the ultimate, a relationship with the king. That's kindness. He says to Mephibosheth, sit at my table with me. Eat my food. Delight yourself in my presence. Talk with me. Be a part of my family. What does that sound like to you? I hope those directives remind you of Jesus. Come and be a part of my family. Come and sit at my table. Come into my presence. Come and delight yourself in me. Those are the same things that Christ has offered to us. I want you just to listen to Ephesians 2, 6, and 7. I think this is, sets it perfectly for us. It says, God has raised us up with him, Christ, and listen to this, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. How cool is that? I love the visual there that Ephesians gives us that we've been seated. That's purposeful uh, language right there. We've been seated. We aren't waiting in line. We aren't holding a buzzer. The kids and I on Saturday had to wait an hour to eat at Chili's, but we were totally committed. But we had to wait in the car, wait for our text message to come, so we went to Target, so it wasn't too bad. But still, we are not waiting in our cars. <laughs> for Jesus, right? We're not holding some buzzer, waiting for a text message to see if we can come into his presence. That is not how it works. We are seated. He has already brought us into his presence and seated us with him at his table. He's invited us to partake of his table. What does that sound like? The cup and the bread. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. You see how this is kind of all coming together? We have been invited to a table, to the communion table. In Christ, through Christ, because of Christ, we are forever invited at God's communion table. That's pretty cool. As one of his children, as one of the king's sons, God does not merely tolerate us for our faith in Christ. God's invited us into a relationship of intimacy and friendship with him. He went way above and beyond what he needed to do. He didn't just check the box. David didn't just check the box, neither did the Lord, but he brought us into a relationship going far beyond the requirements. So what we see in this chapter is the king of Israel, David, taking a nobody turning him into a somebody for no other reason than a promise that he made. That, to me, sounds like the gospel. Pretty cool. We see the king of Israel take a nobody, turn him into a somebody for
for no other reason than a promise. That's us. Mephibosheth, he had a choice too, didn't he? He could have left. He could have said no. He could have decided, I don't deserve this. You know, I, I, my, my background, no. It just, it wouldn't, this wouldn't work, David. You're too great. I'm too little. He could have come up with all these excuses, but he didn't. Mephibosheth may have walked into David's presence as a man of shame, but because he never left, he became a man of honor. May we not leave God's presence. Let's just stay there. Great things will happen if we just stay where we are supposed to stay. Mephibosheth accepted David's kindness, and in doing so, he enjoyed a seat at the king's table the rest of his days. Something that was interesting to me was the commentary mentioned, like, he wasn't healed of his deformity. So, yeah. like, we still will struggle. We'll still mm. have our things that we have to battle against. Things that about our lives that we don't like. Yeah. To, I yeah, love that. Yeah, I thought that. I mean, that is neat. That's why yeah and even even thinking about like our like Mephibosheth's crippling being like a a picture of our sin Mm -hmm. I mean sin is not welcome at God's table but Jesus cleanses us and even as people who still have that sinful nature Mm -hmm. well he was still crippled you know he's he was still welcome at the table that's cool doesn't go away so yeah it's not going to solve all of our problems it's not going to be easy street until heaven. Then it's then it'll be easy street. <laughs> but for now, we're we're still gonna struggle, but we're still welcome at the table all the time. That that invitation is still there. So like um like David, Jesus is the king then who brings honor out of shame. Unlike any other king, he's called us into his presence. He's laid out the decrees of his vast kindness before us. We know them, we've been told them. And Christ hopes that we will stay and that we'll enjoy his company and will delight in the blessings that he has to offer. But will we stay or will we go? We really have a daily choice as believers to either stay or go. To either sit back down or go sit at his table and spend time with him or not. But the invitation is always there. So I see a gospel invitation in this story, but I also see just that daily invitation to go back and sit he went Mephibosheth went back every day and sat with can you imagine those conversations like how was your day Mephibosheth how was your day King David and this is what's being pictured here is this crippled guy having evening conversation just you know shooting the breeze or whatever it might be with the king of Israel that's what's being pictured for us that's what God wants for us that's the invitation he's laid out for us here's your second principle though God's kindness is not enjoyed until it's accepted God's kindness is not enjoyed until it's accepted God's kindness is not enjoyed until it's accepted So God is kind, whether we acknowledge it or not. But whether or not we enjoy his kindness is up to us. We have to sit down. We have to spend time with him. We have to delight in his presence. We have to eat his food to enjoy the blessing of his kindness that's been extended to us. Now, chapter 10 is a little bit different, right? (laughs) It's not quite the warm and fuzzy that chapter 9 was, but it's the reality is what it is. David, again, sets out to show kindness. But here's the cool part. Note that first, his kindness is directed to a Jew in chapter 9, and now his kindness is directed to a Gentile. In chapter 10, 
the gospel is first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. Romans 1.16. That cool? So we see that here too. First he extends his kindness to the Jew, now he extends his kindness to a Gentile king. Specifically, David sets out to be kind to Hanan, king of the Ammonites, because David's father had dealt loyal or Hanan's father, yeah, had dealt loyally with David. I wish we knew that story, but we don't. Hanan's advisors give him terrible advice though and tell him not to trust David. So when David sends his servants to console Hanan due to his father's passing, uh, and what that would entail would be interesting to know also. Like, what did he send them to do? I'm like, did he send a note? Yeah. A That's Here's my condolences. Oh, like, do you send flowers? What do you do in that situation? Yeah. I don't know. Food, comfort. He sends them to comfort him, but I don't know what kind of... Or maybe it's just like, maybe the comfort is just knowing, I will deal loyally with you. You know, I, I will be on your side if you need anything. I don't, I don't know what the comfort would have been. It's interesting, whatever that would look like. But the point is, Hanan disgraces David's men by cutting off half their beards and their garments and exposing them in the wrong places. Now, what's interesting is that Hanan means grace or favor. It's really close to the name Hannah. Hanan means grace or favor. So ironically, since Hanan is anything but gracious here, it's just kind of funny that that's what his name means. And it's David that actually shows the grace. He shows the grace to his own men. He's kind to them, allowing them to stay in Jericho until their beards grow back. So when Hanan realizes that he made a mistake, he calls up the Syrians to help. But there's still no match for God and his anointed, just as we saw and talked about in chapter 8. Then in verses 15 through 19 of chapter 10, the Assyrians try again, but it's no use. The Assyrians then flee before Israel because you cannot fight against the Lord and win. I just love that. <laughs> you cannot fight against the Lord and win. So here's the picture once again. God's anointed reigns over all the nations. It doesn't matter what the nations plot and plan against him. They plot and they plan in vain, just as Psalm 2 said. Now we have proof right here in chapter 10. just doesn't matter, right? There's proof all over the Bible, but we see it again right here. So those who are willing to bow before the Son, before God's anointed, and say, at your service, they will find refuge in his family, just like Mephibosheth did. But those who do not bow before him but scorn his kindness, instead, they will one day wish that they had. They will wish that they had. Those who do not bow now will be forced to bow later because every knee will one day bow before the name of Jesus, right? One thing that I hadn't necessarily picked up on until this week, Philippians 2, 9, and 10, I'm sure you know it, but it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What I hadn't necessarily picked up on is that God had promised to make David's name great. But here, David's son's name is even greater. There's no one's Jesus' name is, is going to be greater than anyone's. I just thought that was kind of neat. I hadn't really thought about it in that context before. But those who do not bow now to the Lord will be forced to bow later. But here's the other picture that we get in chapter 10, okay? I think you're going to like this one. So a group of men are scorned not by the king. David's servants weren't scorned by him. They were scorned because of him. They were scorned for him because they carried his name, because they carried his emblem. It's not that Hanan had a personal dislike for the men of this delegation. He disgraced them because of their association with David. That's why they got disgraced. And Christians alike will be disgraced for our association with Christ. But... God will show us kindness when it happens, right? Just as David did to them. Those who bear the name of the king will be persecuted, as the New Testament 
tells us will happen. And because we bear the name of Jesus, you know, we can almost kind of plan on it. We don't know what that will look like. But John 15, 20 says, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. 1 Peter 4, 13 says, and 14, so if you're writing it down, 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So we're supposed to rejoice in that. So here's your last principle. I think this will kind of tie it up nicely for you. It's infinitely better to be scorned for the king than by the king. It's infinitely better to be scorned for the king than by the king. It's infinitely better to be scorned for the king than by the king. So in chapter 10, we see both sides of that, don't we? We see those who scorn King David, and because of it, they face David's wrath. But then we also see those who are scorned for King David, and they still receive David's kindness. They might receive the world's wrath, but they receive God's kindness, and that's infinitely better. It's infinitely better to be scorned for the king than by the king. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. And why is that? Well, it's because he is the king who brings honor out of shame. Again, we see that in chapter 10. Chapter 9, we saw how he bring, brought honor out of Mephibosheth's shame, a man of shame. Now we see him bring honor out of this group of men who are shamed. You wait in Jericho till your beards grow back. He's going to honor his men. He brings honor out of shame again just in a different scenario. He is the king who brings honor out of shame. Think again just about Mephibosheth sitting nightly at David's table. If Mephibosheth was dishonored in any way, who was there to take care of it? David. If he was scorned, who would have found out about it? David. If he was hurt, sad, mad, who would know about it? David. Every day, Mephibosheth was under the vast protection of the king because every day he went back and sat at the king's table as one of the king's sons. Girls, here's the major takeaway that I see tonight. God is kind. He is the king who is unlike any other king and he has kind intentions toward us. We see that in the gospel. We could see that in lots of other ways. We see that in his willingness to take a bunch of sinfully crippled nobodies and not only seat us at a place of honor, his table, but bring us into relationship with him as well. That's what he's willing to do for us. But the choice remains to either accept it or reject it. We can either accept, accept his kindness or we can reject his kindness. If you accept it, you may be scorned by the world, but if you reject it, you will be scorned by the king. But as believers, we also have that daily choice to either enjoy the king's kindness or exchange it for far less worthy pursuits, which I've been guilty of doing many, 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 many times. <laughs> exchanging it for far less worthy pursuits. We can either take a seat at his table where we really have nothing to worry about, where we know we're under the king's protection, where we can come and bring our troubles to him daily, where if we're scorned, if we're mad, if we're sad, if we're upset about anything, we've been invited to come and sit at his table. We could tell him about it and leave it there and walk away with his righteousness, right? We've been invited to do that. But then, sometimes we go and we sit elsewhere, don't we? We want to go sit, pursue something else, maybe sit in our anger, just stew in it for a little bit longer, whatever it is. But every time we go and sit somewhere else, choosing something else over and above Jesus, it will not leave us fulfilled. 
we will not be fulfilled like we would be if we just went and sat down where we'd been invited in the first place. True fulfillment is only found at his table. So I think you had this verse in your homework, but I thought it was a really fitting way to end tonight. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Just think about this invitation. Put yourself in Mephibosheth's shoes, and then these words for you. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. There's that nothing, right? He who has nothing, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then the question, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. You just hear the Lord just like, I have laid all of this before you. Why are you going somewhere else? Come and delight yourself in all of this rich fare. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. So that's the invitation that's been presented, not just to Mephibosheth, but also to us to just come and sit and enjoy and dwell and live under that protection as one of his children, trusting him daily at his table. I love that. Isn't that so cool? All that just all those parallels that we see. The invitation is there. God's extended his kindness towards us in so many different ways. But the question remains, will we accept it? Will we accept it daily? I think we've all initially accepted it. But we've got to keep going back to enjoy it. Otherwise, we're not going to enjoy it. Any questions? I'm like five minutes early. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> Any thoughts? We actually have a couple minutes to, sh to talk. Anything you want to share? Something you didn't really touch on that I really liked out of chapter 10 was the scripture that was noted on this side. That mm. be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for our cities of God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Yes, that's Joab, right? Yeah. yeah. When he's fighting against the Syrians. Yes, I noted that in this, in the journal, but yeah, not in my notes. Uh the one thing I read about that said it's similar language to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you pick, guys pick up on that too? Yeah, so when they, in Daniel 3, they say, if God is able to deliver us, he will. But even if he doesn't, we will serve him anyway. And that's, that's kind of what Joab was getting at. I like that too because, well, just even, I'm not really sure what kind of a character Joab's always been. You know, he's David's general, but... There, he shows great faith in the Lord. Yeah. And, that's, that, and we can say that to the Lord because we know his kindness or his intention to us is kindness, right? So even if he doesn't save us in that moment, we can know that it's still his kindness to us in some way, shape, or form, you know? I was talking about in that, what, what really stuck out to me about that was he was talking about how they, they were surrounded on every mm. side by enemies. And yeah. how most people would have surrendered. Yeah. And he was like, nope. He knew who was on their side. Yeah. And so he called out the men in them and said, we have to be courageous. That's cool. That's cool. I think we're going to have to come back to that again and again and again. <laughs> because how often we all feel surrounded. Sometimes just in daily things that go on or things in our nation that are going to happen. What? We don't know. But if we feel surrounded, we have to know, remember, who's the king? Who's really in charge? Who is on our side? We can do this, whatever it is. Cool stuff. Anything else? I mean, God was even with David's servants when they went in. Mm. I mean, to me, a lot of the kings would have just, like, oh, you guys are spies and just killed them. Yeah. And yeah. They didn't He's Right. Good point. That's a great point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, Tony, but yeah, they, he could have just wiped them all out, but he didn't. <laughs> was it this way or this way? I was 
thinking it was this it's way. Kind of but I don't know. I mean, maybe it was this way. Well, this way wouldn't be. I would yeah, it wouldn't be. This, you would definitely be. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you having trouble there, buddy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That feels more shameful. This with your clothes half cut off. That's also quite shameful. A slave. Oh, interesting. Huh. That's cool. Half. He was like threatening. You're half my slaves. Also, the talents have been like millions and millions of So we think of that as like a thousand talents as not being very much, but that would have been hefty. Wow. So they paid a huge price, and it didn't do them any good. They just fell to David anyway. Wow. All right, I'll pray, guys. Then we can keep talking if you want, or you're free to go. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for just your kindness and the beautiful pictures that we get tonight with Mephibosheth and uh, Lord, how you've brought us to your table, how you've invited us into your presence how you've made us one of your children, how you long to just be in relationship with us. It's amazing, Lord. It's absolutely amazing of the extent of your kindness, Lord, to us who are a bunch of crippled, sinful nobodies, Lord, and yet you love us so much. Thank you for that. We praise your name, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.